Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and today I am so grateful for you to be joining me here on the Learner's Corner podcast. For today, I am joined by Rich Velotas, and Rich has been on the podcast before, and uh, talking. Last time we talked about you know his book, The Deeply Formed Life, and today we're going to talk with him about his recent uh, release called Good and Beautiful and Kind: Becoming Whole in a fractured world. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to The Learner's Corner, I do wanna let you know about a couple of things that inform pretty much everything that we do here. The first one is this, is that we wanna create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because you know that there's just some subjects to where you could talk with people about, some subjects to maybe you don't feel like you can talk with that person about. But we wanna create the place to where we can have all of those conversations here. The second thing is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them completely. And sometimes that learning is learning from their example of what not to do. And sometimes it's learning uh, from how they handled situations really well. We also believe that we can learn from anything and from everything as well, whether that be something trivial or something a little bit more serious. And the last one, which we have, uh, or I guess I have recently added, to this and I've really been trying to think about um, because it always felt like there was something that was missing. There's an aspect that was missing that informs a lot of what we do here in the podcast and it's simply this idea of being the person who was there for you or trying to be the person that you wish that you had and that's I mean a, a lot of everything that we talked about before is part of why I do the podcast and then this is another reason as well of being the person who was there for me and for you maybe it's being the person who was there for you or being the person that you wish you had in the moment because sometimes we don't have the person that we wish that we had and so that's a lot of uh what lifelong learning is for is helping us and especially what we're going to talk about today of being willing to work through our um our challenges to be worked through working through our bleep and becoming more emotionally healthy and spiritual spiritually healthy as well. And we're going to get into that uh, in Rich and, Rich and I's conversation in a little bit. But if this happens to be your first time listening or whether or not you've been for a long time and there's something that you would be interested in us covering here, covering here on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Rich and then we are going to jump into the conversation. Rich Velotas is the author of The Deeply Formed Life, which is the winner of the Christianity Today Book Award, and the Brooklyn-born lead pastor of New Life Fellowship, a large multiracial church with more than 75 countries representative Elmhurst, Queens. He graduated from with a Bachelor's of Arts in Pastoral Ministry and Theology from Nyack College and completed his Master of Divinity from Alliance Theological Seminary. And he and his wife, Rosie, have two kids, Karis and Nathan, and he is the author of the most recent book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Rich, it's so good to have you back on the Learner's Corner podcast. Caleb, thanks for the kind invitation. Uh, look forward to a good conversation with you again. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of the questions that I love to ask people from time to time is I love just hearing what is currently like capturing your imagination or your curiosity. Like, what are the things that um, you're thinking about and learning about right now? You know, I'm in a season now where uh, in, in, in some ways, and this, not, this might sound crazy, I just wrote a book on various topics. And whenever I, uh, as it was with my first experience writing a book, after the book comes out, I feel like I need to go even deeper into the themes that I've just written about. Uh, and so things like trauma, uh, things like contemplative prayer, things that I've, I've been thinking about for a long time, 
But now that the book is out, I feel, yeah, I, I think I need to dive even deeper in this because there's so many layers. And so I've been reading uh, some new books on some traumas and uh, contemplative prayer uh, and uh, humility. I met with someone recently who was, is a professor of philosophy who specializes in you know, intellectual virtues with a particular emphasis on humility. And so I've just been now swimming into those waters there. But those are a few things that are capturing my imagination these days. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about like, what are some of the, the ideas from those things that is resonating or making you, making you think a little bit differently or making you, um, just as so you mentioned, like go deeper into some of the subjects that you cover in your most recent book? Yeah. For example, like Peter Levine, or uh, he wrote a book on EMDR, which is, you know, he's a, psychi- a psychologist and so a trauma specialist. Now I'm reading these books uh, with not being a psychologist, I'm a pastor. Uh, however, I want to be aware of at least the various ways that people are addressing these things. Not that I'm doing it in my own, uh, you know, pastoral office, but I just want to be aware of the layers. And so Peter Levine's books, uh, which specializes in trauma and not just identifying trauma, but treating trauma, uh, has been a uh, really great um, uh, source of just insight uh, for me. So uh, I've been spending much time on that there. And it's funny because I'm not practicing any of these things yeah. uh, and I'm not writing down and go, Ooh, I need to do this with the congregant who comes to me with trauma. You know, I, I know my limits here. Uh, but uh, what it actually helps me do though, is in my referrals to people uh, when someone comes into my office or I meet someone via zoom and they're talking about various traumas that they've had for me to go, okay, this is what you should be looking for in getting some of the help that you need. Uh, so something along those lines. And then, you know, I mean, I'm reading a, a book on, by John Cassian, who's recognized as one of the fathers of Western monasticism. He predates uh, St. Benedict. He's uh, a contemporary of St. Augustine. And just reading about his thoughts related to prayer. Uh, he's drawing much from his uh, time uh, studying Egyptian spirituality, Egyptian Christian spirituality. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm just hit, getting angles on things that I've read about for a long time, but it's always good to get some fresh ideas uh, with some of these ancient topics. Yeah, you mentioned humility before as well, too. What, what about that? Yeah, you know, uh, the angle that I come out in humility with my book is that humility is not thinking of ourselves lower uh, or thinking lower of ourselves, but humility is about the lowering of our defenses. And so uh, trying to identify what are the things that keep our walls up. Um, and so identifying our triggers. Uh, so, you know, reading books along those lines. And then, um, uh, like I mentioned, I met with this uh, recently in um, Long Beach, California, I had breakfast with a a philosopher who specializes in these intellectual virtues of like curiosity. And so just spending time in terms of the, the virtue of curiosity and uh, things that I've thought about for a long time, but just hearing fresh angles, it's been really helpful. Mm. Yeah. I'd love to, you know, ask you for your thoughts on, and, you know, in, in both this book and your previous book, the deeply formed life, you talk and write so much about spiritual health and emotional health which emotional health is something that, you know, I, I feel like it tends to, you know, maybe get overlooked as it pertains to to the church sometimes. Um, and, you, and you even mentioned like understanding uh, trauma and our, and our triggers and stuff like that. Um, can you talk about some of the, the things that you've learned that help you as a pastor um, just learn more about that and, uh, and the impact that it's had on you and learning about that stuff? Yeah, I've had the privilege, Caleb, of being mentored by someone who's regarded around the world as, I, I don't want to call him the pioneer by any means, but uh, in many ways he popularized uh, for churches and people outside the church, the convergence or the importance of keeping emotional health and spirituality connected. I'm talking about Pete Scazzaro and, and Pete's kind of his uh, magnum opus in emotionally healthy spirituality gets this idea that spiritual health and emotional health are, in, are inseparable. That's it, it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So that's kind of the premise behind much of his writings. And because I have known Pete for almost 15 years now, and he's been a significant mentor in my life, that stuff is just in me because of my relationship with him. Uh, and so along those lines, you know, thinking about 
the integration of our emotional lives in our spiritual lives? What do we do with our anger? What do we do with our grief? What do we do with our anxiety? What do we do with our joy? How do these things get connected to our spiritual lives? Uh, when I think about spirituality and emotional health, I often frame it as paying attention to our inner space and our outer pace. And by our inner space, I'm talking about all the things I just mentioned. What are paying attention to my reactions, my triggers, my wounds, my anger, my sadness, my anxiety, and then also paying attention to my rhythms. Uh, what are the rhythms? Am I living a life that's totally out of control? Am I living a fast-paced, unreflective, uh, compartmentalized life? Uh, and so those are some of the categories that have helped me to integrate emotional health uh, into spirituality. And like my predecessor said, I, it, for me, it's hard to even see them as separate these days uh, because we bring our whole being to God, not just our so-called spiritual side to God. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I want to touch on this. This is something uh, that you talk about in the book and I've been thinking about for a little while is you talk about um, the powers and the principalities that affect us as well. And one of the things that I feel like I've been trying to learn more about over the like the last year or so is how those affect our inner space and our outward pace as yeah. well. And I would just love your thoughts on how, how those things, and maybe even start by just explaining, you know, powers and principalities and then how they can affect, you know, inward space, outward pace. Yeah. You're not going to hear the language of powers and principalities in the media uh, yeah. too much here. So it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not common language that people use, but it's biblical language. And, the idea behind having an entire chapter on powers and principalities is I'm trying to identify the fractures in our society and trying to look beyond what we can see sociologically and even psychologically. I want to look theologically and spiritually into some of the powers and forces that are at work in the world. And thankfully, the Bible has a full breadth of resources to identify the fractures of our existence. And so Paul, for example, in Ephesians 6, writes about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that our battle is not ultimately against what we can see, but there's something else happening in the world that we cannot see that's impacting what we can see. And so powers and principalities is kind of New Testament language to recognize that there are some evil spiritual forces that get connected to individuals, ideologies, and institutions, and have uh, a few goals in mind. That is to uh, depersonalize, to deceive, and to divide. Uh, moreover, what the powers and principalities do is it places values on things that are often in contention uh, with, uh, with the kingdom of God. Uh, and so, for example, the powers and principalities of our world, the ideologies of our world, tend to place great emphasis on something like efficiency. Like efficiency is now on, on one level, efficiency is a good thing. We want efficient computers. We want efficient cars. We want, I want to get an inefficient airplane. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. But efficiency as a life goal for everything, that if my life is not moving up and to the right all the time, if my, that there's something wrong with me. And if uh, the way we define success can very easily be uh, an expression of the larger powers and principalities that root out love uh, for the end of competition and wealth and money and mammon and all the rest. Uh, and so uh, one of the questions that I've tried to ask myself, especially after, as I was writing this chapter was, where in my life am I being seduced and used by the powers? Where in my life am I being seduced and used by the powers? That what are the value systems that are antagonistic towards the kingdom of God uh, that I am finding myself subtly or not so subtly connected to? And uh, I think if we began with a larger perspective to explain, you know, there's certain evils, Caleb, in our world that just cannot be explained with our rationality. There's certain things that are happening that's like, well, it seems like there's something else at work that we fully don't understand, but the Bible gives us some helpful language to at least consider that there's something else happening in the world that we cannot see. Mm. Yeah. Can you maybe tease out some of the examples that you see of, of powers and principalities that, that are playing out in the larger one? Like one that uh, is just top of mind for me a lot right now is just individualism. Individualism would probably be just that, that ideological thing. Efficiency, as you mentioned, would be another one. Um, and any others that come to mind? 
you know, uh, I, I mentioned depersonalization and I think about the way social media contributes to this and social media can, you know, uh, the, in the language without getting too technical here in the New Testament, the powers and principalities are not inherently evil. They're given by God uh, in the form of institutions, in the form of kingdoms, in the form of leadership to actually bring shalom and order in the world. The problem is uh, if left unchecked, uh, if if unexamined, these powers become possessed and by particular ends, which then uh, in, in impact the, the way that they function in the world. And so I think of something like social media. Social media is meant, or, or the, the good side of social media is uh, collaboration, connection. Some of my friendships over the past decade, many of them have emerged out of social media. Uh, at the same time, social media becomes possessed when it is marked by depersonalization. And depersonalization, the way I'm, I'm explaining depersonalization, is it is a refusal to see the inherent personhood, the inherent image-bearing person. Uh, and as a result, we begin to see swaths of humanity. Uh, there's no more nuance as we think about individuals. Uh, we don't see, we see categories of people. We don't see individuals. Uh, and we see that in social media often. The way that we talk to others on social media we would not talk about those people in their presence and are in our presence in that same way. But there's something about the medium of social media that creates this uh, anthropological distance between us uh, that in many ways justifies uh, the ways that we dehumanize and speak uh, very harshly about others. And I'm not talking about speaking up rightfully about justice and all those things there. I mean, anyone who follows me on social media knows that I, I give voice to those things. However, there is within the medium of social media, this deep personalization or depersonalizing aspect of it, where we no longer see individuals. Uh, we just see swaths of people. Uh, we see avatars, we don't see uh, flesh and blood, we don't see stories, we don't see family history, we don't see uh, the, their limits and their wounds and their scars, we don't see any of that, uh, we just see avatars and as a result, um, we make our presence felt in some really negative ways. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, one, and I, I want to dive a lot more into the book, but one thing that I did want to make sure that I talked to you about is... Um, is over, over the past several months, I've seen in, in Twitter, you've kind of announced like, hey, I'm going to be uh, addressing, you know, wrote the the ruling of Roe v. Wade, and you did that at New Life, and then uh, even for some of, some of the shootings as well, um, which is just a very difficult thing yeah. to do. And there's a, there can be a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety of what the congregation is going to say. Um, and, and you've, you've posted on there of like, Hey, this is kind of like a, an outline of what each of those looked like. And I'll link to those in, in the show notes people, so people can see that. Um, I would just love to just talk with you about your, your thoughts and even just your process for how you, how do you engage topics like that to where literally, you know, that like whatever way that you say things, you're, someone is giving you feedback on it. And so how have you learned to talk about those things in, in a Christ-like manner? Yeah, you know, I think my, um, my, my ultimate goal in posting about these things, and first of all, I, I post it because our congregation is so diverse that there are people all over the spectrum seeing social political issues in various ways. And so pastorally, I feel like some of these statements are to uh, bring a better sense of understanding, a better sense of curiosity, uh, a better sense of compassion uh, within our congregation. It just so happens that because of, so, because of social media uh, and when I post these things, folks get to eavesdrop into some of the conversations I'm having with my community at New Life in Queens. Um, but in terms of my ultimate goal is to, it's, it, it comes out of the language of differentiation, is to remain close to others emotionally, but not have my actions or reactions determined by them. Uh, another way of saying it is I'm trying to remain close to God, close to myself and close to others in times of high anxiety and resisting the opposite pull of cutting people off or being enmeshed into them. Uh, I think when anxiety hits our lives, it's very easy to cut off or disappear into others. 
And so in, in, in coming out with these statements, I'm trying to say, this is, I see, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass dimly. In other words, I don't see everything with crystal clear clarity. There are very few things I see things with crystal clear clarity uh, in this world. I don't even see, I don't see myself with crystal clear clarity. Uh, and so I want to come to it with some humility, but with some conviction as well. Uh, but my goal is that I would write in such a way that I would pay attention to the layers of complexity, to the nuance, knowing ahead of time that because we are in such a polarized society, there's going to be lots of people that are unhappy. And uh, for example, I mean, it was it was fascinating, Caleb, that uh, after the Roe v. Wade thing, it just gives you this gives you a sense as where our nation is. Um, within a, maybe a day or two, there are about a thousand people who just stopped following me on Instagram. And many of them let me know why, <laughs> decided to send me messages on direct message, letting me know why they're unfollowing me. And then I would say a couple of days later, within that day span, a thousand people started following me on social media. And I just thought, this is, ex this is exactly what's happening in our world. Said, let me tell you why I'm following you now, Rich. And so my goal is, is exactly that. How do I address some of these issues with the uh, recognizing the layers of complexity that are inherent in these very delicate issues? Um, moreover, uh, in terms of my process, there are two things that go into my process. Number one, I I'm, I'm regularly thinking about a number of very you know, social tensions that every year something's going to happen. And so whether we're talking about sexuality, abortion, race, politics, I find myself having a steady diet of reading before there's conflicts that are go national. And so I'm, in many ways, I try to anticipate what's going to happen in the world by just reading and studying so that when something happens, I don't have to go, oh, shoot, I better read a book on this so I can get a statement together. <laughs> For me, at yeah. that point, I've done a lot of my homework, and now my job is to synthesize and try to give in very accessible, compassionate language my pastoral word. And so that's on the back end of it that no one sees. Uh, and then when I put a statement together, I usually have maybe there's a group of five to six people that I run it through, some within our church, some outside of our church, and I ask them to speak into it and to help me to strengthen it. Uh, and so I've done that with my sermons. After I preach sermons, I ask people to help me strengthen my sermons. Uh, I've done that with my writing, with public statements like this. And so what people often see is, yes, it's my statement, but I've had the great blessing of having wise people around me um, strengthening it before it goes live. Yeah. One other thing that I want to uh, ask you about as it pertains to this, and you and you talk about it in the book, is you mentioned, you know, a couple of years ago, whenever we were in the in the 2020 election cycle, is that uh, you guys hosted via Zoom, like a, um, I guess it would be like a forum, maybe like a forum of uh, of two different people, one who was uh, voting for former President Trump and one who was going to vote for now President Biden <laughs> in that, which to me was like, it was a whole nother level. Cause I'm like, of course you're going to, you know, address all of the stuff that's happened, but you decided to do, you guys decided to do a forum. Can you talk about that and kind of what you learned through doing that? Yeah. And that idea was not mine. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you, you write about your anxiousness through, through, yeah, the you know, yeah. one of our pastors, uh, pastor Helen, Kim Nowak, she had emailed me and said, uh, Hey, Rich, have a great idea. Uh, I think because, <laughs> because the election is, you know, six weeks away or so, I have a great idea. Why don't we have two of our congregants have a conversation as to why they're voting differently? And I thought, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Why would we do that? What do you think this is, a church, you know? And, uh, and initially I had lots of trepidation and hesitation about it. And uh, we decided to go forward with it, again, with my resistance. This wasn't me going, well, praise the Lord. Yeah. What a great idea. It was like, oh, no. Uh, and we had this Korean-American man in his 50s who was voting for Trump and this Puerto Rican man in his 60s who was voting for Biden and an 
uh, African-American, you know, millennial man uh, in his late 20s uh, who was moderating it. So a very uh, unique experience here in Queens. Uh, and what I learned in that was the, the gift of curiosity and humility. Now, to be sure, there were some fundamental differences mm-hmm. and things that I was like, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Or I, but we were trying to model something that we can come to the table together with curiosity, with humility, uh, with a sense of compassion, with, with the desire to understand why we believe the way we do. And um, I, I think that did much for our community. Now, here's the challenge. Even after the election, there were some who left our church uh, because you know they thought, I believe certain things about the world and I don't wanna be a part of a church that has a pastor like that. Uh, but ultimately, I think that forum, as, as challenging as it was before, uh, before we had it, because I was thinking all the worst scenarios would take place, was a really great gift for our church. What made you say, yeah, we need to do this? Because you said, I mean, you're, you're experiencing resistance and yet you said yes. Yeah, you know, I, I often have, Caleb, when I think about, uh, I have very quick reactions to things and uh, much of it is my own anxiety. And I, shut, I can shut things down very quickly. So for example, whenever someone on social media challenges me, uh, I post something and they send, you know, comment on it, uh, whether it's done in good faith, whether it's done harshly, uh, doesn't matter. For me, my initial response is uh, uh, to you know, I resist. I'm not going to engage this person, um, you know, all that. And then I realize that a day later, I look at the same situation again or the same comment 24 hours later and I have just, you know, my equilibrium has returned, my emotional, and I'm able to go, oh yeah, that's not even a harm, that's not, that's a harmless question these people are asking, let me respond to it. So what I've learned about myself is, I, I can't trust my initial instincts about how I respond to things, that I often need a day or two to step back and get out of my own emotionality uh, and my own reactivity to think more objectively about something. And so in the case with that, I thought about all the worst scenarios and I thought, no, where are we doing this? But after a couple of days, I thought, I write all these things about emotional health and all these things about integrity and all these things about, and I think this might be an invitation from God uh, to us. Uh, And so I think more than anything, I have had to, and this is not an easy thing, I have had to be mindful and not trust in my immediate response to things. Uh, because if I live my way that, if I live my life that way, I'd be missing out on all kinds of opportunities to have Jesus shape me. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, don't trust my own emotionality. That's, that's how I, that's why I said yes to it. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to the book, you know, good and kind or good and beautiful and kind. And, uh, I, I love just hearing just the story behind works of art. And so I would just love to hear from you of what was the, the thing, the series of events that, that led you to go, okay, I, I think I want to explore this and maybe put this out into the world. You know, in some ways, this book has been living in me for a number of years, but I think the urgency of it emerged uh, in 2020. You know, I've explained that we live in a CPR world, a world marked by covid political idolatry, racial injustice, and the convergence of those three forces have caused all kinds of heartache uh, in our families, in our churches, in our individual lives, in our nation, in our world. And so I started seeing those, I've been seeing those fractures in my church. We haven't had like massive church splits or anything like that, thank God, but still it's very easy to see the fractures and the ways that we're coming at life from very different perspectives. And so in some ways, 2020 lit a fire under me to say, this is not the first time that there's been conflict and fractures in our society. This is really what humanity is marked by since the very beginning. But is there a way to think through our 
differences in our fractured selves internally and interpersonally in some, with some new language. And so what I wanted to do, first of all, was offer theological categories to really get at our fractured lives. I, I wanted to, I, I think we need sociological categories. I think we need psychological categories. Uh, but those categories don't often give the full and truer perspective that I believe theology does. And I, and I say that in faith, and I say that as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus. I think we need theology to help us understand the deeper fractures of human existence. And so that's what I was trying to do. I was, this is not a work trying to uh, replace sociological and psychological resources that can help us understand what's wrong. In fact, I often draw from them some things like trauma. Uh, but I'm trying to get at, from a theological perspective, what's going on in the world. And then out of that, I mean, really the second, the, 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 the second and third parts of the book are trying to paint a picture as to how we can live into something more good, more beautiful, more kind. I, I, don't, I don't want to, you know, one of the, <laughs> um, this is going to come as a slight to people who are in the academy. Uh, and I hope it's not received that way because I've, I've learned tremendous amounts from scholars, philosophers, those who are in the academic world. Um, but I, I want to write things that are livable. Um, and that doesn't mean I have to dumb it down. That doesn't mean I have to uh, not be scholarly. But I want to I write things that are livable. And often it's very easy to write about the problem or analyze the situation and not give handles as to how we can live a different way. And so as a pastor, you know, I, I think about something Eugene Peterson said, who was a scholar in his own right, but wrote with a level of accessibility for the world. He talked about in his memoir, uh, what it meant to be Pentecostal. His mother was a Pentecostal. And Peterson's understanding of Pentecostal was that the Bible, he believes that the Bible is livable that what we see in the Bible is livable. And I, I just love that exp, you know, explanation of, for him, how he was framing Pentecostalism, because uh, I wanna write something that people can say, okay, this helped me move in a direction away from the problems. It's very easy to uh, name the problems and not offer alternative directions for our lives. And so, for the second and third parts of the book, that's essentially what I was doing. I just don't want to talk about how the world is ugly and bad and mean, uh, but how we can live into goodness and beauty and kindness. So, but that really is the impetus behind why I wrote this second book. Mm, yeah. And, and I do want to dive a little bit into like that, that way of being that we can live, you know, good and kind of beautiful life. Um, one of the things that I want to ask you about, about, you know, the problem, because I feel like you, you frame it in such, in such a, um, a new, a, a new way is how you talk about sin and how there's a tendency for us to think about, you know, sin being um, a breaking of God's law. And you reframe it and say that it's more of a failure uh, to love other people. I, I would love to hear uh, just your, your thoughts behind that. You know, the idea theologically that I was drawing from is, uh, is this, if the greatest command is to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. If that's the greatest command, the logic for me is this, then the greatest sin must be failure to love. Uh, to love, failure to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and failure to love our neighbor as ourselves. I'm using the language of Jesus here. Uh, and so uh, it's easy for sin to be reduced to rule breaking, trespassing, um, you know, failure to live up to a particular moral code or standard. And as a result, that's sin. And, uh, and what I think we, we miss in the language theologically is we can so focus on sins that we fail to pay attention to sin, that sins really is the symptom of, of sin. And sin is really the, a principle uh, a, a way that orients the world inward. And so the language I use is that uh, St. Augustine uses the language of being curved in on ourselves, that that's what sin does to us. It curves us inward, uh, not for the sake of introspection and self-examination, but for the sake of 
orienting the world around us, centering ourselves. And so, uh, and that's the nature of sin. That's the nature of greed. That's the nature of lust. That's the nature of, I mean, you name the seven deadly sins. It's about us being curved inward, pride. And then the question becomes, if that's what it means to be curved inward, that's what it means to be in sin. What does it mean to uncurve ourselves? And so, I mean, at its core, I'm trying to, when sin is seen as failure to love, um, I think what it does in many ways is it gives Christianity and Christians a, a different way of framing um, morality. Uh, not that we are not to pay attention to our own private lives and the things we engage in and the things that scripture very plainly calls sin, you know, or wickedness, whatever it is, but I'm trying to reframe it. And Caleb, what I'm trying to do in many ways, I'm swinging pendulums. I recognize, for example, with holiness. I mean, I posted something today on social media that holiness is not simply what we abstain from, but what we give ourselves to. Uh, it's, I come from a church tradition where holiness is stay away from all of that, but don't give yourself to anything necessarily. And for Jesus, holiness is not about what you abstain from. It's what you give yourself to. It's mercy. It's compassion. It's love. It's justice. And does that mean we shouldn't be abstaining from things? No, that doesn't mean we should be abstaining from things. What I'm trying to do is trying to jolt our theological systems uh, and help us to maybe to say something in a uh, slanted in a particular angle that can maybe help us to reimagine what we mean by these words. And that's essentially what I'm trying to do with that word sin. Yeah. What's one of the practices that has most helped you in terms of um, moving away from the problem more towards that good and beautiful and, and kind life? You know, quite frankly, I mean, uh, I, I write about confession as, um, as a means of doing that. And uh, whether confession in our public worship, you know, a couple of years ago, we moved to having prayers of confession every Sunday. I know churches have been doing that for centuries, but for us, it has been very new to just think about the ways that we have failed to love, the ways that we have failed to uh, open ourselves to God, uh, the things that we've done and the things that we've left undone. Uh, and so uh, that in our communal worship has been very a, a very important practice, uh, but individually as well. Me being honest with the ways that I curve in on myself, uh, in confession, in reflection, in prayer, uh, and I mean, all of that usually happens for me in a specific practice of centering prayer, where uh, I open myself to God, and then it is in that place where. Um, I really get a clearer insight, I think, into uh, the ways that I'm curving inward and not loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength and my neighbors, myself. But I'd say contemplative prayer, centering prayer mm -hmm. has been my primary practice to move me uh, into the good, the beautiful, and the kind. Mm. Yeah. Another big idea that you talk about, uh, and I think is in the last chapter of the book, it's definitely towards the end, is, uh, is you talk about justice as well and how that plays into love, which is which is not a very, um, it's not talked about a lot. Love and justice are not talked about a lot. And I would just love uh, for you to talk about maybe, maybe why do you think that is, or what has led to that being the case? And what does love as justice, what can that look like? Yeah, the reason why it's not seen in that way, I think is a, cu a couple of reasons. One, uh, definitions matter. And uh, how we define love culturally uh, I think often impacts the way we engage the world. So that's number one. I think uh, when love is reduced to uh, sentimentality, when love is reduced to romanticism, when love is reduced to uh, affection, uh, it's going to have impact about how we think about love in larger ways. So that's the first reason that we have trouble seeing this. Secondly, from a theological perspective, I think it's how we've understood the gospel that the gospel has been seen not as good news to order a world under the rule of Jesus and the way of his kingdom, but the gospel has been seen as uh, in a particular way of believing the atonement. The gospel has been seen as forgiveness of sins. The gospel has been seen as entry to heaven upon death. 
and as a result, we have no social imagination to do what Jesus did when he said, we are to pray and live your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, and, and so from a, from a cultural perspective, from a theological perspective, there's often this, uh, this, this connection, this fracture between uh, justice and love. Cornell West has helped me to, I, mean, I think he has, he's been the one who has uh, simplified it the best, I think, where he says that justice is what love looks like in public. And love is really at its core about uh, uh, willing the good of others. Uh, we want to live and will and work for uh, the flourishing of other people, the good of other people the wholeness and the healing of other people, that's love. And justice invites us to ask, what are the layers that keep people from wholeness? What are the layers that keep our society from goodness, from beauty, from kindness? Where are the places of uh, inequity? Where are the places of fragmentation? Uh, justice says, we have to think not just about our individual lives or interpersonal relationships, but also the institutional realities around us. Uh, and when you look at Jesus, Jesus is in the tradition of the Hebrew prophets, the same Hebrew prophets like in Amos and Isaiah, who Micah, who talk about uh, the larger structures and systems of the world that are oppressing people. Uh, the larger institutional religious structures of the world that are prioritizing some and diminishing others. Uh, and so to think about the larger reality that we find ourselves in, uh, thinking about justice in that way is a essentially Christian thing to do. Uh, and so really applying love to justice or connecting the two, I think is one of the most important uh, ongoing developments that we need in the church. Yeah. What do you see are some like just misunderstandings maybe in the church about justice? Uh, I, well, I, I think of it from one side that uh, justice is uh, a, a misunderstanding is that it is somehow uh, secondary to matters of faith. I mean, so yeah there's this debate that's been online that every time I see it, I scratch my head where people want to make a distinction between biblical justice and social justice. And I, I, I in some ways, I understand what they're saying uh, in the argument. Uh, sadly, whenever people, whenever some of these folks who are resistant to the idea of justice, when they try to speak of biblical justice, it's, it's usually not done with any form of specificity, which is the weirdest thing to me. So I think one misunderstanding is that justice is seen as optional uh, towards our faith. Um, I also see on the other side that uh, justice, as good as it is, is not what justifies us. I mean, I think people can swing the pendulum on the other way and, and so orient our lives around justice that we think that's the thing that makes us right with God. I mean, it's faith in Christ that makes us right with God. And it is out of that place, See, I think I believe seamlessly that we are to work for justice. But I think the idea of the, the presence of justice, I, some have zero regard for it as they think that's a, a purely secular category. And others have um, in some ways uh, used it as a category to justify themselves. Uh, and so, I mean, those are just a couple of things that come to mind about some misunderstandings about justice. Yeah. Uh, another big idea that you talk about that uh, you're, you're learning a lot from right now is family systems theory yeah. as well and how that plays out to this. And I would just love to um, hear from you and, and maybe maybe even explain kind of what family systems theory is and then maybe one or two practices that have helped you and your learnings from that. You know, fa family systems emerges out of the, the work of Murray Bowen uh, classically. And um, Bowen uh, in you know, mid 1900s was trying to understand why people um, had psychological challenges. He's a psychiatrist, he's trying to identify uh, how we can help people. And what he realized was uh, you can't really understand uh, an individual without understanding the larger system the larger family system 
that they emerge from. And uh, it's, you know, it's the case where, you know, recently I, I was meeting with a congregant and, you know, I, I was always curious about his life and some of the ways he lived. And, and I, I saw him in one context and then I saw him in a context with his family. And when I looked at his family, I thought, oh, this makes all the sense in the world now. It just gives me a, a larger uh, insight into um, uh, why this person is the way this person is. And so differentiation, family systems theory covers a number of different ideas. For example, uh, differentiation, which I'll talk about in a moment here. Mm -hmm. It talks about things like triangulation, uh, you know, uh, family projection process, multi-generational transmission, uh, things like sibling position, um, uh, and then you know, the larger kind of emotional process in society. Uh, so that's, uh, th there's a wonderful book by Roberta Gilbert, who uh, she writes about the eight kind of aspects of Bowen theory, which is really about family systems theory. What I've learned most, I think, I, I think a couple of things, one as it relates to differentiation uh, and triangulation uh, in terms of uh, finding wholeness. Uh, and so differentiation is this idea, I've alluded to it already, how do I remain close to God, to myself and to others in times of high anxiety and resisting the polar opposite pull of cutting off or being enmeshed into others. And that requires a level of introspection, a le level of self-regulation, uh, an ability to remain present to others uh, at its core, it's about not living a life of reactivity and emotionality, but living based on principle. Hopefully it's principle that's informed by the gospel for Christians, but it is principle and presence. Uh, that, I mean, in many ways is the outworking or the fruit of family systems theory. Well, I got two other things that I want to ask you about, but before that, and then I, and I know that we've covered a lot of stuff in the book. Is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about or that we haven't covered about the book yet? Um, you know, I, when I, just thinking about the, the, the categories of the book, you know, one of the things that I haven't gotten a lot of pushback from, I mean, the book has been out of just a couple, two weeks, you know, but, mm -hmm. uh, but I do know, uh, culturally, especially in Christian, Christian world, uh, the language of trauma is something that often goes, uh, lots of people have different responses to it. Some people think that we are over traumatizing our, our human condition, that uh, why are we making everything about trauma? And, uh, and I, I think trauma is a category that Christians should actually excel in because we, you know, trauma means to wound. And we, we serve a wounded savior, a wounded Messiah. And so if there's anyone who should be able to navigate the terrain of trauma, uh, it should be Christians because of the Messiah, the Christ that we follow. Uh, and so seeing trauma as an important formational and theological category, uh, I think is really important, especially think about the last couple of years, the levels of traumas, the death. The, the anxiety, the fear that people have carried in their bodies. Uh, I think we need to actually spend more time thinking about this as a category for our own formation. Hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit more? And like, how do you, like in, in your role as a pastor, because this is something that like I, I struggle with and I try to think through as well as like in a pastoral role, how do you care for people who are going through trauma while at the same time, um, like also recommending them to, hey, it might be time to go see uh, a counselor or a therapist and just managing that tension, if that makes sense. Yeah, my job as a pastor, uh, in, ma in many ways, my task is to help people live in reality uh, and uh, connect dots. And, and, and then when appropriate, uh, refer them to people who are actually specialists in this category. Uh, and so in some ways, there are lots of people who don't even, re I, I remember meeting with someone, uh, it, was, it was a men's retreat I was leading, and I led them through a genogram, which comes out of family systems theory. And part of the genogram was, okay, we want to identify our patterns our, from generational patterns, tra traumas, and our scripts, our internalized messages that emerge out of these generational patterns and traumas. 
And I remember a couple of, not a couple of, there were a number of guys in one group. I was sitting in one group trying to have them share. And they, they, you would have thought that they just, they lived in a sinless home. I mean, they're how that I can't think of any problems, Rich. I mean, that was a good life. I, I was, and I'm thinking there were no gaps from your parents. Like I, I think about my children. I've done so much internal work. I've read so much and I'm still wounding my children. You know what I mean? There's certain mm-hmm. things that I'm doing and not doing that I know my kids are gonna need to process in the years to come. And I just thought, these guys had, I mean, they grew up in a sinless home. And uh, what I realized was my job as a pastor in many ways is to help people unearth uh, the, the gaps. Not, I, I, my job is not to make things up and try to get them to, well, yeah, that did happen to me. And oh yeah, now you should feel bad about that that happened to you, you know? Uh, but my, I, I want to help people live in, in reality. So things like genograms, I mean, I often do genograms with congregants to help them see the ways that they have experienced generational patterns and traumas and scripts from one generation to the next. Um, at that point, uh, I often try to help them think through the internalized messages and counter instinctual practices to help us or help them live beyond that. Uh, and then I realized ultimately that to deal with something as deep as trauma that's stored in our bodies, this is this is not just stored in our uh, in our cognitive b- minds. Yeah, I think this is our our bodies tell a different story as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is why Bessel van der Kolk's book, you know, the body keeps the score, is just such an important book, and it's become seminal in reading for mm-hmm. our society because it's locating the the insight and the knowledge that the body contains that we need, need to be more conversant with. And so uh, pastorally, my, help, my job is to help people live in reality, c- connect the dots, prayerfully open ourselves up to Jesus, rethink our scripts and our internalized messages with the gospel, shaping us in new ways, and then finding, you know, connecting them with the help that they need from people who are actually specializing this. Yeah. One thing that I would be so remiss if I did not ask you about is I know that you are a big Marvel Cinematic Universe fan, and I uh, I love your your tweets of your takeaways from you know whether it be the Disney Plus shows or the movies or anything, and I would just love to hear from you what is you know a a couple and I'll let you you could go as as many as you want to I'm not even going to put a limit on it but I would just love to hear from you some of the things in those shows that have resonated with you so deeply and some of the things that you've taken away from them. Oh yeah, how, how much time do we have, Caleb? Uh, <laughs> well, let me let me try to summarize some ideas. Yeah. Um, I, I think um, there there are there's there's one thing outside of the MCU. What I mean by that is from a production perspective, and three things within the actual MCU world yeah. that I really appreciate. Um, from the outside, I, I really appreciate the, I mean, Kevin Feige, who leads all the Marvel stuff and his team, their ability to think so far down the road. I mean, they, they are, you know, they just had at Comic-Con in San Diego, they, they you know, talked about phase five and six and even phase, you know, what might be phase seven. Yeah. And I'm thinking, they're thinking, you know, 10, 15 years into the future on ideas to have that level of foresight about where we can go. Now, the nice thing is they have so much material to draw from because of the world of comics. And mm-hmm. so they have source material f- that can last for decades. And so the nice thing is they're not starting from scratch. They already have storylines that now they, their, their task is to pluck those storylines and figure out what will work best in the world that we live in. But the foresight, the planning in advance is inspirational to me. So that's kind of just like Marvel from a larger macro perspective. But when I think about the actual MCU in terms of the films that we watch, um, I love number one, how interconnected these stories are. Um, there, there, there is, you don't realize it because it, it, it slowly unfolds, 
but the ways that these seemingly localized stories uh, in various parts of the universe don't seem connected. And then you realize, no, oh, they are connected in so many ways. In, in some ways it feels, I don't want to talk heresy now here. In some ways it feels like the Bible, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> look at the Bible. There's all these different storylines from different generations, different categories of people at different places in time that you realize, oh, there's one overarching story. There's there's one meta narrative. There's something that there's a, a big thread. So, I mean, I really appreciate the interconnectedness of the stories and the larger, you know, meta narrative around it. I also love just the human story, the human element of it. I mean, they've done such a good job um, uh, uh, giving language to the human experience. And so, whether we're talking about Wanda and her trauma, whether we're talking about uh, Moon Knight and you know dissociative identity disorder uh whether we're talking about falcon and winter soldier and and their understanding of uh, the racism loki and identity i mean i think just the, they really get to do a good job unearthing the human experience and so when people are reading when people are watching it they're able to go wow i mean i i see me i i see my own struggles i see what it means to be human and then lastly, I mean, what I appreciate about Marvel is the, the way that they handle villains. Uh, villains have such a, uh, there's, such, there's so many layers to these villains where the, there's a complexity to the villains, where in some genres of movies, it's very easy to see that's a villain, that's a bad person, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and, and let's kill them, you know? Uh, and then there's other villains where you go, oh, they, they make you sympathize with villains. And I think in some ways, what it does is it helps to see, I think about Wanda, for example, in Doctor Strange movie or Thanos, like, you know, there is a rash, we might not agree with everything, but at least yeah. you can see, oh, there's a rationality behind what they're doing. And uh, I think Marvel has, I think there's a reason why Thanos is very popular <laughs> yeah. in our culture uh, because, and Wanda as well, because we've seen the complexity of villainy uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, I mean, those are just a few ideas of why I, I love the MCU. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing that I want to ask you about is I know uh, that it's right around the time to where it's been 10 years that you've been at New Life. And so... The last thing that I would just love to ask you is um, I would love to hear what some of the, and again, I know this, this could be an entire podcast in itself too. So I'll just say, you know, one or two things that you're, you're most grateful for at new life or for learning at, at new life. Wow. Yeah. It's I'll be next year, 2023. It'll be my 10th year as the lead pastor and my 15th year at new life altogether. Um, you know, I, I think more than anything, I'm grateful for a culture that I, I did not create this culture, but I've done my, I mean, I've, I've worked hard to nurture it uh, over the last decade. I, I'm grateful for a culture that prioritizes being before doing, uh, a culture that um, uh, rewards rest, a culture that sees the interconnectedness of spirituality. I mean, we have a community development corporation that sees over 2000 patients per year. Uh, that offers pediatric care, dental care, social work. I mean, right in our building uh, from doctors and nurses and social workers and psychologists. I mean, so, uh, so to see the interconnected uh, way of following Jesus, these are things that were at New Life before I got there. And I've had the privilege of trying to fan that into flame. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the last couple of years have been very difficult for many pastors and my, you know, for my life included, I can't imagine pastoring outside of an environment like this. Uh, and I see why lots of pastors want to quit because they don't have truly an emotionally healthy culture uh, that can help us withstand the pressures of our larger society. And so, I mean, so much I'm grateful for that's not to, I don't want to romanticize yeah. or sensationalize community life because there's, there have been plenty of challenges as well, but uh, I'm profoundly grateful for the culture that I've inherited. Hmm. Yeah. 
for for someone who's like listening to that and they're listening to like man that that sounds like such a good and and you know just as you mentioned every every place has problems you know yeah. stuff like that um but they're like i i want a more emotionally healthy church or workplace that i'm working at what what might be a good first step for that that you would say you know i i, I think probably the first step and let me talk just to churches, for example, and, and you know, mm-hmm. church environments or parachurch environments. I think the first step is recognizing that our emotional life is deeply connected to our spiritual life. Uh, that as itself is a paradigm shift for so many people. Uh, and I think if we can take our interior world seriously, uh, the the fears, the anger, the exhaustion, if we can take these things seriously, I think we can begin to think about ways to nurture our lives. But if, but if our emotional lives are seen as secondary or irrelevant to the spiritual life, then why are we even paying attention to these things? It actually becomes justifiable uh, to not pay attention to these things if this is not a category within spirituality but i think if we can see the emotional life and the emotional part of ourselves as deeply connected to what it means to follow jesus um i think we can begin to then make some necessary adjustments in terms of work pay, work uh pace um limits expectations uh have, helping people and creating a culture where they can navigate the various difficult things in their lives in a shame-free environment uh, all of those things, I think, will uh, begin to take place. But I think it begins fundamentally with where do we see the emotion of our, of our lives in the larger category of spirituality? Yeah. Well, Rich, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your book, Good and Beautiful and Kind. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Yeah, if they went to richfalotus.com, they could check out uh, the book there and other resources. I'll be coming out with a discussion guide in a couple of weeks for folks who want to have conversations in small groups with this book. Um, they can also check me out on Instagram and on Twitter, you know, with uh, the Rich Velotis handle. And that's places where I'm usually uh, testing ideas and sharing things that I think might be helpful to others. Uh, and from time to time, especially on Twitter, um, uh, offering Marvel and sports takes that <laughs> sometimes are good and sometimes are very bad. Uh, but that's where I'm living. Uh, uh, on the interwebs and all that awesome well rich thanks so much for being on the podcast today and thanks for just doing the work and for sharing it with us thanks Caleb. great to be with you again so coming out of that conversation there's a couple of things that have really got me thinking are still are making me think. And the first one is this, is just what he was talking about and what he writes a lot about in the book about powers and principalities and what are the the forces, the things that are, that are trying to influence us? What are the things that are having over-influence on us, whether that be good or... Um, I mean, I guess in, in some cases it could be, I guess it could be good in some cases, but a lot of times it's for the, for the negative or for the evil. And so thinking about those things that push us in one direction or another, you know, having mentioned, um, you know, individualism and I think even just realizing that a lot of these things can can become individualism even even dependence or i guess it would be codependency might be the the opposite of that can be aren't necessarily good to the extremes they aren't necessarily good another one that i thought of is like anti-intellectualism and the and the opposite would be of solely intellectualism as well and yeah, so just just thinking about a couple of those things and and really I think just trying to figure out more of 
What is influencing me? What am I allowing into my life that is having a greater influence than maybe, than maybe I want it to have in my life? And I think another thing that, um, that he talked about in there is just the idea of sin and how sin ultimately is a failure to love. And thinking about it that way just gave, gave it a, a fresh perspective and really really just made me think a lot. And the last thing uh, that I have to say on this, I guess, is um, actually, I got, I got one more after this. I just thought of it. Um, just what he was talking about of modeling the, the examples of, of even hosting a, a, uh, a debate around the presidential election. Because I remember reading that in, in the book and going like, wow, that seems um, it just surprised me. And I think it surprised me because that's not something that I would have even considered or thought was um, possible. But that's one of the things that got me thinking about it. And just his um, being willing to address what is happening, you know, whether that be or what I guess what is what the the members of his congregation are experiencing, whether that be on a country level, or on a um, or on a city level, or or on a local level, as well. So just thinking about those things, and again, I'll link to those uh, those posts to what you made on Twitter as well, if you want to check those out. And of course, you know, I loved uh, his, some of his thoughts on the MCU. Couldn't couldn't go uh, without asking that. So those are some of the things that are standing out to me some of the things i'm thinking about and i would love to hear from you if you have someone or some things or ideas that you would love us to talk about or someone that you would love us to talk with on the podcast as well and the best way to reach out to me is learners corner podcast at gmail.com and i think that's all that i have for today i do want to say thank you to sam massey for providing the music for this podcast thank you to rich for joining me again on the podcast as well and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode my name is caleb mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing